I didn't have lofty goals like that. I didn't want to change the world. I just wanted to change the car. My conclusion from that is that, you know, if you want to dent the universe and change the world and, you know, end poverty and the digital divide and climate change, you know, hallelujah, God bless you. But uh, my goals weren't that sacred. And yet, if you look back, what does it matter what motivated me? I am what I am. So uh, it's not what motivates you, it's that you are motivated somehow. Hi, I'm Guy Kawasaki. I am the creator of the Remarkable People podcast, which is the second best podcast in the world. The first being Ash Roy's Productive Insights Podcast. Welcome to the Productive Insights Podcast, where you can learn how to systemize, automate, and scale your business via the internet. To access previous episodes and useful productivity tips, go to www.productiveinsights.com. Now, here's your host, Ash Roy. Welcome back to the Productive Insights Podcast. This is Ash Roy, the host of the Productive Insights Podcast and the founder of ProductiveInsights.com. Today, I have a very special guest, and his name is Guy Kawasaki. He is a chief evangelist at Canva and the creator of the Remarkable People Podcast, which is awesome. He's the executive fellow of the Haas School of Business, UC Berkeley, and an adjunct professor at the University of New South Wales, which is where I happen to do my MBA. So, hi, Prof. Ah, <laughs> you are one of my best students. <laughs> Thank you, Guy. That's very kind. <laughs> he was a chief evangelist of Apple and a trustee of the Wikimedia Foundation. He's written Wise Guy, excellent book, The Art of the Start 2.0, The Art of Social Media, Enchantment, and 11 other books. Guy has a BA from Stanford University, an MBA from the UCLA, and today he is going to talk to us about all things entrepreneurship and marketing. So welcome to the Productive Insights Podcast, Guy. It's an honor to have Thank you on. Thank you. It's an honor to be on. Thank you. Thank you. That's very kind. Guy, I have been diving into your content and you have a body <laughs> of work. And I'd be lying if I yeah. said I went through all of it because there is so much. One thing I want to say, and I mean this from the bottom of my heart, your honesty, your candor, your integrity just comes through in your writing and all your content. So I just want to say I appreciate that. It means the world thank to me. Thank you. And thank you for doing everything thank you've you. done. Thank you. You're welcome. And uh, I'm flattered you think so highly. Man, I've been following you since the days of All Top. I don't even know if you still do that, but I used to. <laughs> oh, really? Yeah, I no, I don't. That's interesting. Eight years ago when I was right, when I started. Wow. All right. So, Guy, here's my first question. Harold Keebles at Iolani and Steve yes. Jobs were two of your greatest yes. teachers. And they had yes. a big impact on your life. What did they have in common? And how can people listening or watching this conversation find teachers and mentors like that? What they had in common is that they were both very demanding <laughs> to the point of being scary and perfectionists. And so my insight is that the people who were the hardest on you coaches, teachers, mentors, bosses are probably the people who taught you the most and helped you the most. And that is always the case? I don't know about always the case, but uh, I, you know, I'm sure there are people who can just pound on you with negative results and they have negative motivations. So I'm not saying that every difficult, tough, mean-spirited person is good for you okay, by any means. I'm just saying that, you know, 
those two, because they were arguably reporting to a higher kind of goal uh, of denting the universe or teaching me English, teaching me how to write, uh, which is different than doing it for their own self-glory or you know, their own ego. They drove right. me the farthest and the fastest and the hardest. There's no question. They weren't mean-spirited. This actually brings us to another interesting point, and that is you've often talked about the importance of having a cause. Now, Apple, yes. when they started, they had a cause. Canva yes. has a cause. And as you often say, it's democratizing design. And I believe yes. Apple was about democratizing technology. How does somebody listening find a cause? One obvious thing is it should be greater than oneself. How does one find a cause? And do you believe that Apple still has a cause today? Well, one finds a cause just by being aware, I think. And I think that evangelists are made, not born. So when a cause finds you or when you create something that truly captivates you and you see as good news that can dent the universe, then whether you find the cause or the cause finds you is rather unimportant. It's the fact that the two of you have found each other. And so I, I wish there was a tried and true method to find a cause or create a cause. A lot of it is just being in the right place at the right time. So Steve Jobs and Harold Cables drove you really hard. Um, how does one do that as a leader in a company without being mean-spirited or without being cruel. And surely you agree that not all cruel people are great leaders. <laughs> <laughs> to put it mildly, yes. But yes. some great leaders can appear cruel, but they aren't yes. necessarily being so. Could you talk to us a bit well, more about that? Well, surely. So some of it is that, is the person equally cruel? <laughs> so is he, or, is he or she cruel to everybody, right? So that's and one test. And Harold Keebles. Yeah. So Harold Keebles and Steve Jobs were demanding and cruel of everybody. Not just me, not just a handful of people, everybody. And I would make the case they were probably cruel and demanding of themselves. Right. So I think many times when you meet cruel people, they're cruel to everybody except themselves. Uh, you know, I could think of some recent politicians in America that, you know, they never thought they did anything wrong, but they were surrounded by people who did everything wrong. Huh. I have you know, no idea um, who you're talking about, Kai. <laughs> yeah, well, okay. Well, <laughs> I wish I had no idea of who I was talking about. So, so that's one thing. It's, you know, sort of uniform cruelty is yeah. necessary. Uh, another thing is that it should be cruelty and challenging and, you know, et cetera, et cetera, for the greater good to create a great computer, to create a great understanding of English which is different than to be cruel and demanding in order to prop yourself up. So applying that same test to recent politicians, guess what? I mean, it's kind of clear yeah. where our fearless leader comes out in that. I also want to commend you on your bravery, to put it bluntly, in terms <laughs> of posting your thoughts on LinkedIn. There's a lot of integrity between what you do and what you say. So Kudos to you. Thank you. Thank you. Speaking of integrity, 
and grit, which is also something I think you have. And you've often said, I may not be the most talented person in the world and I may not be the most gritty person in the world, but there's not many people who have a combination of both. In your conversation with Angela Duckworth on your podcast, the Remarkable yes. People podcast, have I mentioned that's a really good podcast? But anyway. Um, in your... <laughs> Go for, feel free to do it again. Yeah. <laughs> in your conversation with Angela Duckworth, you mentioned that podcasting, is one of the most difficult things you've done, but one of the most satisfying things you've done. And clearly, yes. I know from experience, because we're recording episode number 210 right now, I agree that it takes grit, but I would love to know as a fellow podcaster, what makes it so satisfying for you? For me, what makes it so satisfying um, is that I think that my listener gains insights into how to be more remarkable with each episode. So whether it's Jane Goodall or Angela Duckworth or Steve Wozniak or Steve Wolfram or Christy Yamaguchi, uh, whoever it is, I think all these remarkable people have some value they can add to people's lives. And my job is to bring that out. And so I find it very rewarding that, um, you know, rather than me preaching the way that these people from very diverse backgrounds can, in fact, help people become more remarkable. And I, I will tell you one more thing, that, which may be the most satisfying thing that I've heard as a podcaster is that several of my guests have told me that my interview was the best interview they've ever had in their lives. Oh, that's that wonderful. Is, that, that makes my day. I have the pleasure of saying the same for some of my guests. And one of the high points in my podcasting career was when Seth Godin said to me that I'm a fine correspondent and a good egg. And that just, that meant the world to me because <laughs> Seth Godin is another person I deeply respect and admire. Yes, absolutely. Absolutely. You often said that the action happens on the next curve. And yes. Steve Jobs was great at conceptualizing what is going to happen on the next curve and then realizing it, you know, through his re reality distortion field that he was, his engineers often talked about. It does take something special to be able to step beyond what is obvious. But let me give you an example of a thought experiment I often do. I imagine the day when I first discovered an iPod, an Apple iPod, the square ones they used to sell. I don't think they sell them anymore. And at the time, I was an Apple naysayer. And like everybody, I was saying, oh, Apple is just overpriced and it's, you know, crap and all that stuff. <laughs> and I remember I was in Singapore and I saw all these MP3 players and they were so cheap. I mean, what, why is Apple charging so much money for the same functional product? Mm -hmm. And I was working at a company called Telstra at the time, which was across the street from the Apple mm -hmm. store. And I went in and I touched this little Apple iPod and I fell in love. It was so thin. It was, <laughs> it was so beautiful. I just fell in love with the thing. And then I remember I was going for a run with it one day and it had this power song uh, feature where if you press the thing in the middle, it would play a power song. So you could sprint in the middle of your run. And I just <laughs> fell in love. And now fast forward a few years later, I've got approximately 40, 50 devices Apple devices of different sorts in the house. 40 have, to 50? Yeah, well, I have HomePods, I have Macs, I have a whole bunch of stuff <laughs> all over the house. I often imagine Steve Jobs discovering this world with these ugly-looking MP3 players, these plastic things, and going, oh, that's just offensive. You know, it was offensive to his 
his Zen values and beliefs. Aesthetics, yes. His aesthetics. And so he came up with this form factor and he came up with the iPod, which then went on to change the world. And I remember he had the thousand songs in your pocket. And at the time, people were marketing the MP3 players as 56 megabytes of space and 24 megabytes of space or whatever. And Jobs probably thought to himself, I'm a music lover. Why the hell would you tell me how many megabytes of space? Tell me how many songs yeah, you came up with a thousand songs in your it's, pocket. Is that how it It's a meaningless, it yes. I wasn't at Apple when the iPod actually came out. Now, I don't know if you can say that Steve you know, designed the iPod. There's at least two stories about how uh, an internal engineer came up with the idea. And then there's another version of a story with Apple bought a company because they couldn't make their own iPod. But regardless of the origin, one of the uh, qualities of genius is knowing what's great and what's crap. And so whether Steve invented it himself or an employee brought it to him or a company brought it to him. He knew what to accept and what to promote and what to run with and what not to run with. So that in and of itself is a form of genius. You need to know what to steal. That's not apparent. I mean, if you think about it, why didn't Sony come up with the iPod? Why didn't Hewlett-Packard come up with an iPod? They all had money. They all had the technology. So, you know, you just have to wonder why. <laughs> because some, of Steve Jobs. Absolutely. Do, do you think that was just something innate? Or is that something we can develop? It would be kind of pessimistic if I said it was innate. So then all your listeners will say, well, I just turn off this podcast because I didn't get the, the genetic lottery. So, you know, I'll just be a mediocre person the rest of my life. Oh, we all have our special gifts. That's true. It's funny you should mention that, but I'm 66 years old and I truly have come to the conclusion. You know, I used to, like anybody in Silicon Valley, I used to have these feelings of superiority over, over people, right? And I have come to believe that Everybody you meet can do something better than you. Now, it may be design an iPod. It may yeah. be make tamales. It may be surf. It may be sewing a dress. It may be raising mushrooms. I don't know what it is, but I guarantee you, everybody you meet is better at something than you are. And so maybe you're better at something that is more monetizable, but don't go out believing that you're superior to everybody and everything because you aren't. I agree. At least in my experience, life has a way of hitting you with a brick, as someone famous yes. once said. As Mike Tyson says that, you know, <laughs> plans are great until the first punch lands, right? <laughs> Yeah, everyone has a plan to that effect. until you get punched in the face. Exactly. Steve Wozniak on your podcast talked about his passion for building everyday products and not catering yes. to these big corporates. Steve Wozniak was always and still is not financially obsessed. He's anti-corporate. He's very much about being an yes. everyday guy. All he ever wanted to do was be a great engineer. And that's how he saw himself. But Jobs and Wozniak were so different, yet so complimentary. Do you agree that Steve Wozniak also played a critical role in the development of Apple, which is sadly often overlooked? Oh, yeah. <laughs> at the start of Apple, and I think at every company, there are only two functions that matter. 
somebody has to make it and somebody has to sell it. Sell it. Yes. So yeah, if if there's nobody there to sell it, it doesn't matter what you can make. And if there's nobody there who can make something, then you have nothing to sell. So I would give Steve Wozniak a great deal of credit. I mean, you know, without him, Apple would not exist. What would Steve Jobs sell without that? Yeah. So uh, I think Steve Wozniak is maybe the purest form of engineering uh, in Silicon Valley. It's amazing what he has done for Apple and his purity of heart and his purity of purpose yes. is very clear whenever you listen to him. Yes. Guy, you often say at the start of your career, you were the evangelist of Apple and that was a big thing. And now you're ending your career with Canva and everything else in between was flailing. I respectfully disagree. I think you've done <laughs> some amazing stuff in the interim. All Talk, for example, the books that you've written. How have you achieved so much and been so prolific, particularly given, given your beginnings? I mean, you started in a lower middle class home <laughs> and, and yeah. I remember you talking about being driven home in a fancy car by your friend's mom. And you say that it doesn't matter where your motivation comes from. What matters is that you are motivated. Can you tell our listeners right. a bit about that? So I come from a lower middle class family in Hawaii. And now we were not you know, dirt poor, can't afford to eat and have no clothes and, you know, no books, but we definitely were not rich. And I have to tell you, um, I didn't know I was poor until I went to, to the mainland because <laughs> I was just, you know, happy. I mean, you know, if you don't know, you don't know. And then I, it's a funny story. I have like four little stories here. So I was hijacked of my, I don't know, allowance or lunch money on a public transportation bus twice in school. And then, uh, as you say, someone gave me a ride. A family friend gave me a ride in his Porsche 911. And then my classmate's mom let me drive her home one night in her Ferrari Daytona. Many people have this. You ask them, well, what motivates you? They say, well, I wanted to end poverty. I wanted to reduce the digital divide. I wanted to end climate change. I wanted to change the world. And to be completely honest, I didn't have lofty goals like that. I didn't want to change the world. I just wanted to change the car. And so my conclusion from that is that, you know, if you want to dent the universe and change the world and, you know, end poverty and the digital divide and climate change, you know, hallelujah, God bless you. But uh, my goals weren't that sacred. And yet, if you look back, what does it matter what motivated me? I am what I am. So uh, it's not what motivates you. It's that you are motivated somehow. I can't tell you that when I see a movie like Crazy Rich Asians or I see a series like Bling Empire, I'm saying, oh, God, you know, go, go, go. You know, <laughs> I can't tell you. <laughs> I'm in that frame of mind. But you know, what can I say? I, when I was an undergrad at Stanford. There used to be this thing called Parents Weekend, which was when the parents visited. And many of the families from California, their parents drove to Stanford. And so when the parents were there, they all take you out to dinner and you go out, you know, hang out with your roommates, families and all that. And so during Parents Weekends, my friends in the dorm, their parents used to show up. And like one in particular, he drove a Ferrari. And I saw this guy, he was a cardiologist and he drove a Ferrari. 
you know, I, I used to look at parents and him. And I said, God, you know, I, guy, that is why you're at Stanford. That's why you're studying hard. And that's why you're going to work hard because someday you're going to buy a Ferrari. Now, fast forward, you know, I have owned Porsches and stuff. But now, uh, just to give you a full circle here, so now I, I, I go to Stanford. This is when Stanford was you know, still in, in person. So I drive around Stanford because it's near my house. And you know I see kids playing basketball outdoors and walking around. And, and I look at them and I say, oh, man, I wish I was them. You know, my biggest problem is the midterm, right? That's your biggest problem, your midterms. So what I would give to be back in college, and I can guarantee you, they're probably looking at me saying, what I would give to drive a Porsche like that guy. <laughs> so, you know, <laughs> the, the grass isn't always greener. <laughs> and it, it comes back to what you said earlier, isn't it, Guy? Like you said, when you were young, you didn't know you were poor because it's all relative. I think... Yeah. A good, an important question to ask is what is poverty? Because you could have millions of dollars and be emotionally and spiritually bereft. Uh, and to me, that is oh, we poverty. Can, are we going back to politics again? <laughs> <laughs> no, that was not my intention, but I see exactly what okay, you mean by okay. that comment. <laughs> okay, I'm just wondering. Just checking. You open the door. You open the door and I drove right through it, baby. <laughs> Fair enough. Man, this is a fun conversation. When you spoke to Tim Ferriss, you mentioned to him that yes. you sometimes think that podcasting may be more powerful than writing a book. And Tim yes. talked about the half-life of a book being longer and a book being potentially stickier than a podcast, which can possibly be a bit more fleeting. Although I know you can yeah. go back and listen to a podcast. So my question to you is, being an author of 15 books, do you agree with that? And are you going to write another book? Because I would like to read it. Well, I have said 14 times that this is the last book I'll ever write. I don't anticipate writing another book. And Tim Ferriss aside, uh, here's my take on it. So with a book, it takes you about a year to write. And then it takes you know, six to 12 months for a publisher to get it out. So it really is a year and a half to two year project. You get three payments, uh, one at sig signature of the contract, one at delivery of the manuscript, and one at when the book ships. And those three payments for most authors are the first and last payments they will ever receive because most books don't earn back their advances. And uh, so now you, you've, you've completed this book and six to 12 months later, the book is out. And it's probably wrong on the day that you release it. Now, wrong at several levels. One is mistakes have been found after it was too late. Then also things have changed, right? So can you imagine, take the worst case. So you wrote a book about how to start a tech startup, okay? And it was going to come out in early 2020, there's a chapter in the book about how to network. So how to go to conferences, how to have breakfast with your venture capitalists, how to connect at cocktail parties, et cetera, et cetera. And then the pandemic happens and there are no conferences. There are no parties. There are no meetings. There are no networking events. You can't play golf. You can't even go shopping. So your book is instantly irrelevant. Meanwhile, in that same book, there is not one word about how to pitch using Zoom. 
Yeah. Because every pitch was in person. So now what? So now you, what are you going to, you're going to revise your book in a year and a half when it's too late. Mm -hmm. So my take on podcasting is I, I can change topic every week. And so when the pandemic hit, I interviewed the former Surgeon General of the United States, uh, Vivek Murthy, who worked for Barack Obama, right? I, inter I interviewed the, the managing director of the International Vaccine Institute. I interviewed an epidemiologist at UCLA, all about the pandemic. Yeah, yeah. And Ramoyne, within weeks of when their topic was relevant. That could not have happened in a book. And then with a podcast, you can monetize a podcast every week. So you could, you know, you could get paid every week for as long as you do your podcast, which is very different than getting three checks and that's it. Now, I, I don't want to paint a picture that podcasting is necessarily easier than writing a book. It's just different. There, there are as many challenges doing a podcast as there are writing a book. I've been told to write a book a few times, but I've been, I must confess, fearful of writing one because I once heard somebody say, everyone has a book in them. And in some cases, it's best that it stays there. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I will tell you that, you know, you have to apply the test of pretend it's pre-pandemic that, you know, you walk into a bookstore and there's 25,000 titles in the bookstore and 24,000 are sitting on shelves. So you can see one inch of their spine and a thousand are out. You know, why is anybody going to find your book and read it? Right. I mean, that's the test. And it's not because you want to increase your brand awareness. You want to increase your speaking. You want to increase your consulting. It's, people don't go into a bookstore saying, how can I help Ash Roy and Guy Kawasaki get more money? You know, that's not topical for them. So right. you have to answer the question, why the hell are you going to seek out your book? And if you can't answer that question, don't write a book. Yeah. As you say, if you have something to say, then write a book, but don't write yes. a book if you don't yes. have something to say. Yeah. So, uh, you know, T Tim Ferriss may be able to get million dollar advances and, you know, live off this, this one check. So hallelujah. Listen, more power to him. But I, I think a podcast is faster. I think it's more efficient, more topical. I think it's more monetizable. Um, because you can always change sponsor, you can change advertiser. Uh, and as you grow, you can charge more, you know, with a book as it gets more popular. Yes, you get more royalty, but it's not like you can say, OK, my book was 1995 when it was not proven. And now it's 49.95 because it is proven. It's going to be 1995 forever. And then when the paperback comes out, it's going to be 995. Yeah. <laughs> so it's always a volume game. Maybe, maybe I can thread the needle because after let's say I do two years of Remarkable People podcasting. Arguably. I am very well qualified to write a book, How to Be Remarkable. Yeah. Well, I don't right? think you need to wait that long. I think you're already qualified. <laughs> okay. <laughs> so, so maybe I can thread the needle and do both. But until then, I'll just podcast. I'll tell you what, there, there have been some remarkable people on your podcast. Jane Goodall Thank is you. a remarkable person. Yeah. Angela Duckworth is a remarkable person. And something that you've done that I think is remarkable, and I want to acknowledge that, is in Clubhouse, which is this app, if you're listening 
it's this app that is very addictive. Proceed I, with caution. I know but, what you're going to say. Yeah. <laughs> well, yeah. you know, I just think that's that's wonderful because look, I'm not opening another political door for you to walk through, but I just think that the world <laughs> has too many men in positions of power, and I think we need more of a balance. And I really appreciate you exclusively bringing women up to the speaker stage in that app to speak <laughs> because I think for too long women have not been given an equal voice and exactly i really respect and appreciate that well just so people understand what the hell we're talking about so clubhouse is this quote unquote social audio app it's kind of like listening to a talk show it's kind of like a podcast and it's kind of like a conference and so you can make rooms, which is think of a room as a conference. And so when I make a room, I always call it ask me anything because I want people to be able to ask me anything, my advice on anything. And I have one stipulation, which is in Clubhouse, you as the creator of the room, you grant the permission to speak to people when they ask for it. It's kind of like a town hall in a sense, right? So when Joe Biden does a town hall, somebody picks who asked the question. It's not everybody raising their hand and screaming out the question. And so if you think of that as an equivalent of a town hall, and I am the person whose town hall it is, I only call on women to ask questions because I think, as you say, that women's voices have been stifled for too long. And now in my little speck of the universe, I am changing the rules so that only women have the mic and the floor and the podium and only women's voices will be heard. And if you're a man and you can't deal with that, don't oh. listen to my clubhouse. Yeah. Go someplace else because, you know, welcome to what women have been dealing with for hundreds of years. And if you yeah. can't deal with it for an hour, tough. I had Rand Fishkin, the founder of Moz. Yeah. He was on my podcast and he said to me, this is years ago, you need to have more women on your podcast. And I was like, yes, I do. Where are they? Because it was not easy at the time. This is a while ago. I didn't come across that many women founders. So he gave me a list of six people. And then I started discovering more and more women on the podcast. So I really appreciate that. I haven't done it lately, but I'm roughly 50% women on my podcast. I mean, there, it's not, it's definitely not 60, 40 or 70, 30 or 90, 10. Um, It'd be interesting if you look at someone like Guy Raz with uh, how I did this or at an extreme Joe Rogan, or even Terry, Terry Gross, it would be interesting to see what percentage are women on their podcasts. Uh, I I don't know the answer. I'd be very interested. Why don't you have an intern do that for you? (laughs) (laughs) I can't help but say this. I shouldn't go down the political path, but I've got to say it. The way in which the Prime Minister of New Zealand has handled the whole coronavirus thing. And in fairness to the Prime Minister of Australia, they've handled it pretty well as well. But the Prime Minister of New Zealand has been amazing. And I think... We need more people like that in positions of power. We need less testosterone and a little bit more <laughs> pause before we just go rushing into just trying or, to conquer everything. Yeah, we need more ovaries and less testicles. <laughs> right. How's that? <laughs> Correct, yes. 
I mean, if you think about it, men have been given the opportunity to run the world for hundreds of years and they pretty much screwed it up. So let's try something different. <laughs> Only a fool will keep doing the same thing, expecting a different result. So, you know, what's the downside? I mean, Angela Merkel, Jacinda, like, why not? Absolutely. Absolutely. I'm yeah. Kamala Harris, 2024, baby. You know, it'd be really fascinating. It's like Kamala Harris and Stacey Abrams or Kamala Harris and even The Rock. I would vote for that. Kamala Harris and The Rock. Oh, my God. That would be like <laughs> so fun. I mean, if Ronald Reagan and Donald Trump can be president, The Rock can be vice, uh, vice president, certainly, and president, too. Why not? But, you know, I got to say, Biden and Obama haven't been really boorish. I think they're quite good as leaders. Yeah. Wouldn't you agree? Quite yes, balanced. absolutely. But to be fair, how hard could it be to look like a good leader today? <laughs> right? <laughs> I'm just gonna I'm just gonna let that go. In in Australia, okay. we play a game called cricket, and they say I'm gonna let that, that go through the keeper. So there's a wicket keeper who stands behind the wickets and catches the ball. So I'm I'm gonna say I'm gonna let yeah. that go through the keeper. <laughs> okay. But, I want to be respectful of your time, and you have been so generous. I don't want to keep you any longer. I could talk to you for hours, man. <laughs> I don't have hours of wisdom. So, you know, ask me one last question, and then I'll get back to my family. How can people find out more about you, and how can people access the Remarkable People podcast? Well, the second one is easy. You go to remarkablepeople.com. What a concept, huh? How hard is that? So, remarkablepeople.com. Accessing me, my email is guykawasaki at gmail, and only I read the email. Well, it's not true. Somebody else has the password. But if you get an answer from guykawasaki at gmail, it's me, for better or for worse. So, yeah, those are two ways. Thank you, Guy. I appreciate it. And then, that. you know, you can follow me on social media, but I'm telling you, I'm highly political. I'm very liberal. If you follow me on social media, understand that I'm a liberal. I believe in vaccination. I believe in equal rights for women. I believe in immigration and the beauty of immigration, making America great again. Mm -hmm. I believe that climate change is, an, is a threat that could end the world. Yes. I believe that the democracy in America was severely, severely threatened in the last five years. Mm -hmm. I believe that Joe Biden got more votes and he won the election. So if you disagree with all of that, don't follow me on social media because you ain't going to change my mind. I also understand I'm not going to change your mind. It's okay. Well, thank you for sharing your thoughts and being so honest. <laughs> All righty. Take care. Send my best. Don't have too much Vegemite. And uh, yeah.